Hello and welcome to Macabre for Mortals. I'm your host Claudia and this week I will be discussing and telling you about the murders of Jane Rimmer, Kiara Glennon and the disappearance of Sarah Spears. Just going to warn you, I am recovering from uh, a bit of a cold which my son decided to share with me, which I know I do tell him to share things, but I don't think I really wanted to share this. So my audio might be a little bit off, but I didn't really want to not provide you with an episode this week. And I have actually worked quite hard on this one as well, since it is a case which was cold for almost 20 years. And it's actually recently just been solved or the suspect that they found has just been captured and was put into trial in 2019. The ladies' names who I mentioned at the start are the victims. As you may have noticed in my true crime parts of my podcast, I'm always going to put the victims' names as... I always believe that when we see things in the media, we do actually see the killer's name more often than we actually see the victim's name. I can tell you now that I know who Ted Bundy is, but I doubt I could list all of his victims, which I personally think is very sad that the killer is remembered more than the actual victim. So these ladies... Jane, Kira and Sarah, their murders and disappearance come under the banner of the Claremont serial killer, which happened in Perth in Western Australia. I'd first like to give you a little background on Perth so you can really feel yourself in the setting. And some of the information today actually comes from one of my good friends who grew up in Perth. She actually knew and went to the bars mentioned in narrative today. Her cousin was even interviewed as she happened to live or was friends with one of the lady's boyfriends at the time. To her, this case was really monumental and she has followed this through her life as being so close to the scene and not having any resolution for 20 years. It's like having a shadow cast over community as a whole. A lot of the community in Perth haven't actually managed to move past the three horrific murders until the resolution just recently happened. So Perth is the capital and the largest city of Western Australia. Captain James Sterling founded Perth in 1829 as the administrative centre of the Swan River Colony. It was named after the town of Perth in Scotland due to the influence of Sterling's patron, Sir George Murray, who had connections with the area. It gained a city status in 1856 although the Perth City Council currently governs only a small area of the central business district. The city's population increased substantially as a result of the Western Australia gold rushes in the late 19th century. It's grown steadily since World War II, 
due to a high net migration rate. Post-war immigrants who are predominantly from Britain and Southern Europe, um, more recent arrivals have led to a large population of Asian descent. Several mining booms in other parts of Western Australia in the late 20th and early 21st century saw Perth becoming the regional headquarters for a large mining operations. Even now, there's still, um, I know people who are fly-in, fly-out miners, and they go into Perth as well. That's one of their main hubs, as well as northern Queensland. However, with much history, we know that the arrival of the white people is not the start of a country's history. Aboriginal Australians have inhabited the Perth area for at least the last 38,000 years, as evidenced by archaeological remains at Upper Swan. The Noongar people occupied the southwest corner of Western Australia and lived as hunter-gatherers. The wetlands of the Swan Coastal Plain were particularly important to them, both spiritually and as a source of food. The Noongar people know the area where Perth now stands as Borloo. Borloo formed part of the territory of the Muru to the Noongar clan, which at the time of the British settlement had Yelangonga as their leader. The Muru was was one of the several Noongar clans based around the Swan River, known collectively as the Wadjuk. The Wadjuk themselves were one of a larger group of 14 tribes that formed the Southwest, sociolinguistic block known as the Noongar, meaning the people in their language, also sometimes called the Bibluum. On the 19th of September 2006, the Federal Court of Australia brought down a judgment recognising the Noongar native title over the Perth metropolitan area, the case of Blenel versus the State of Australia 2006. The judgment, however, was overturned on appeal. I've not been lucky enough to enjoy the city of Perth yet, but as our state's borders open up in Australia post-COVID, I hope to be able to make this six-hour flight from Brisbane to view the beautiful aquacoloured seawater at their beaches as well as taking the local scene. We have been quite lucky here in Australia not really to have been hit by COVID too hardly as most of America, Asia, Europe has. I know personally now um, with my family in the UK that they're all going back into a four-week lockdown, which from where I am sitting, we are in a very, very good place. And I don't always think that everybody appreciates just how well it is actually been for us. This case begins with the disappearance of 18 year old Sarah Spears on the 27th of January, 1996. Sarah had been out with friends and she left Club Bayview in the center of the suburb of Claremont around 2 a.m. We know this to be the time that she left as she called a company called Swan Taxis from a public telephone booth at 2.06 a.m. 
mobile phones were a luxury item at the time and not one that an 18 year old would have I remember having to use public phone booths to call my parents to pick me up when I was out with my friends obviously not at 2 a.m and I remember the first mobile phone that my mum had and it was huge it was a flip out you had to pull out the antenna it was a luxury and I think at the time she was paying nearly a hundred pound a month just to be able to have that At the time, Sarah was living with her older sister in South Perth, but she requested from the taxi company to be taken to the suburb of Mossman Park. It's not known, but perhaps she was going to go stay with a friend. Sarah was seen by three different witnesses standing at the corning of Stirling Road and Stirling Highway when an unidentifiable car stopped where she was waiting alone. When the taxi turned up to pick her up at the arranged location at at 2.09am, Sarah was nowhere to be found. This is particularly harrowing to me because as a teenager, I did walk places by myself while inebriated and not to get a taxi or walk home to my flat, which was very close in the centre of town. Sarah, on the other hand, was not drunk She was just tired from a good night out with her friends. This is something that could have happened to many of us. And it only took three minutes from her calling the taxi to completely vanishing. The most gut-wrenching part of this is that Sarah's remains still have not been found. So her demise still remains unknown. I understand from the perspective of a family who has lost a loved one that finding out that they've been murdered or found deceased is one of the worst things that you can ever experience. But not knowing where your loved one's body is or what has happened must be like living in a constant limbo. You are grieving, but you also have that grain of hope that she might be still alive. Sarah's failure to arrive home the next day to her sister's house would spark a series of frantic phone calls between her and Sarah's friends. They had all assumed that she had got home safely and their sense of panic grew steadily over the weekend and nobody heard any news of her. Finally, when Sarah failed to show up to to her job on Monday morning, her father, Don, went to the police. Just want to bear in mind that this was not their first action on the Monday morning. Her family and friends had already been handing out flyers in the suburb of Claremont and asking if anyone had seen Sarah. To everyone who knew Sarah, her being missing was completely out of character often her not to keep into contact with her sister was considered very strange. Sarah was described by many people as responsible, loving and considerate, a girl who any parent would have been proud of and not someone who would have accepted a lift from strangers. As the days progressed, Every door in Claremont was knocked on and taxi drivers were quizzed by the police and all to be ruled out. Even the club where Sarah was last seen 
put up a $10,000 reward for information leading to the whereabouts of Sarah. Two weeks after Sarah was last seen, Paul Ferguson, who was the detective inspector on her case, made the statement, reality must take effect eventually, that the young lady has come to harm. This was in a way preparing the family and also the public for the worst. As unlikely as it is, police also had to consider the possibility that Sarah simply did not want to be found. But four and a half months later, any hopes of finding her alive would evaporate overnight. Another young woman had disappeared from the streets of Claremont. In the early hours of the 9th of June, 1996, 23-year-old Jane Rimmer also disappeared from the same part of Claremont. Similar to Sarah, she had been out with her friends that night. Her friends explained how they had moved from the Ocean Beach Hotel to the Continental Hotel and then finally to Club Bayview. For any non-Australian listeners, hotels are considered to be like an English pub or a bar that has a restaurant in it and poker machines attached to it rather than a hotel you can actually stay in. Her friends saw that there was a long line at the club to get in on Club Bayview and decided that they would catch a taxi home. Jane, however, decided to stay. She was obviously having so much fun and she might have known people who were already in there. This again is not really known. With modern cases, the use of CCTV, where you can see victims last minutes and possibly see sometimes the suspects in it, I think is just so upsetting for a family. Because it's like getting a last glimpse of their soul before they're taken. This is the case here. There is CCTV that shows Jane just after midnight standing outside Club Bayview. There is a 32 second gap in the footage while the CCTV cameras around the club are filming. When the camera returns to Jane's original spot, she has vanished. 32 seconds to vanish. We do have to keep in mind though that this is 1996 and CCTV isn't what it is now where you can have all the cameras going all the time. These are ones that flicked around to different places in the club to make sure that they did have eyes on everywhere. And the CCTV was actually installed by the club after Sarah's disappearance. So they were very proactive into doing this. But it is still really harrowing that it only took 32 seconds it was bad enough when it was three minutes when it was Sarah, but now this is an even smaller gap. 55 days later, on Saturday, the 3rd of August, 1996, Jane's naked body was found 40 kilometres south in a bushland near Walcott Road in Wellard by a family picking wildflowers. 
She had sustained injuries to her neck inflicted by a cutting or sawing action. She was partially decomposed and largely covered in vegetation. The parts of her body that were not covered by branches had sustained damage from animal predation. Nine months later, a 27-year-old lawyer, Kira Glennon from Mosman Park, was out celebrating St. Patrick's Day early with her friends on Saturday the 15th of March 1997. Like the two other victims, Kira was out at the Continental Hotel in Claremont and it decided that her night had come to an end and was going to make her own way home alone. Kira was seen like Sarah by three witnesses. She was walking south of Sterling Highway at about 12.30 a.m. And the, th- the three witnesses saw her interacting with an unidentified light-coloured vehicle which had stopped by the side of her. 19 days later, on the 3rd of April 1997, her semi-clothed body was found by a bushwalker near a track of scrub. Like Jane, she was covered by vegetation in a crude way to conceal her body. Her autopsy showed that Kira was struck with an object that fractured her skull. This would have momentarily stunned her before she was killed by a similar neck injury to Jane. It is clear that Kira fought for her life. She had a large wound that ran from her temple to her neck and a large cut about 27 20 centimetres in length down her right arm. Her left thumbnail was severely damaged and the tip of her right ring fingernail was torn off. It was determined that the damage to both nails had also occurred close to her time of death. There was DNA found, not belonging to Kira, under her left middle fingernail and left thumbnail which she would have gotten there while she was trying to fend off her attacker. Kira's father had always said in every police press conference, the way she's been brought up, she will fight. And she did. This DNA was one-fifth of one billionth of a gram. And this will become the most crucial piece of evidence that would lead to the arrest of her killer in 2016. When Sarah disappeared, within 48 hours, the case was taken over by the major crime squad. Then when Jane disappeared, the Western Australia police set up a special task force called Macro to investigate the two similar cases. But when Kira disappeared, the police finally confirmed that they were now searching for a serial killer and the Western Australian government offered a $250,000 reward for information that would lead to the arrest of the killer. This reward was the largest ever offered in the state at the time. The initial investigation centred on the unidentifiable vehicles that were seen at the two locations of Sarah and Kira, and then the unidentifiable man seen in the video footage of Jane. 
The main train of thought at the time was that the suspect must either be or disguised as someone that the ladies would trust. This first focused on Perth's taxi drivers because the women were last seen in the circumstances where they may have used taxis. And we know this because Sarah actually had called a taxi firm minutes before her disappearance. One focus became the taxi driver who drove Sarah to her location on the night before she disappeared. A massive fingerprint and DNA testing process was carried out on all the taxi drivers licensed in Western Australia. However, given the evidence of the number of unlicensed operators, examining standards for eligibility was raised and 78 drivers were delicensed for significant criminal history. Stricter standards were also applied to verifying that decommissioned taxis were stripped of insignia and equipment, as this might have been something that had crossed people's minds in the past. They just sold on their taxi and they would still have the insignia still left on them. However, in December 2015, investigators finally revealed that the fibres from Jane were identified as coming from a VS Series 1 Holden Commodore. Just to let the non-Australian listeners know that Holden was a car that was manufactured in Australia up until February of this year being 2020, and the brand as a whole will be retired by General Motors by 2021. Holdens are a very common car in Australia, specifically the Holden Commodore, was their best-selling car for 16 years, and being in rank one or two in Australia for 13 years. By these statistics, you can see how daunting it must have been for investigators, as the fibres were not the most unique thing that could be found, but it could help them if a person they had as a suspect happened to own one of these models of cars. Macro attracted both praise and criticism, though, for the handling of the case. As for most things, there was always things that we can improve on. When the investigation was at its peak, it had over 100 members across 10 different teams, which is a huge operation, but considering they had two known murders and one missing, this is not unusual. To avoid leaks during the investigation to the media or other sources, they implemented strict confidentiality protocols, and certain details of the nature of the deaths and the injuries were suppressed. This is usually done because, as many of you probably know, the details will be only known by the perpetrator and the defence team, when it comes to court and a trial, cannot claim that they found this information out from the media. This information can also be sometimes only privy to the medical examiner and the lead detectives to prevent even more leaks. One of the tactics used by Macro was a controversial distribution of questionnaires to 110 persons of interest, including various confrontational inquiries such as, are you the killer? Another was its reliance on international experts and the use of an important lie detector machine. As we know in a lot of US cases, a lie detector machine is not admissible in court because there are many factors which can actually influence this and show false results. However, sometimes it can be used to 
be able to coerce a confession from an actual killer. But this is not really something that I find has much firm footing in a criminal investigation. Further, one of the macro's officers accepted help from David Birney to invest to assist in the investigation. David Birney and his wife Catherine were an Australian couple in Perth as well who murdered four women in their home in 1986. They were eventually captured when their last potential victim, Kate Moir, escaped. This is another story I will cover in the future, so this is the briefest of rundowns. However, his input into this case was a lot like Ted Bundy's in the Green River investigation. Not very useful and a waste of police time. The other criticism of the handling of the investigation laid mainly on the narrow focus of the initial prime suspect, despite the lack of direct evidence. I will discuss this in a few moments in a bit more detail. But over its lifetime, Macro had 11 police reviews, including one of August 2004, led by Paul Schramm, the officer who led the Snowtown investigation. It was finally wound down in September 2005, and the investigation moved to the Special Crime Squad. In April 1998, a public servant from Cottesloe, Lance Williams, was identified by police as the prime suspect after his behaviour attracted their attention. He was seen driving round after midnight and circling the Claremont area up to 30 times during the police's decoy operation. Lance did give this as an sort of an alibi because he said he was concerned for ladies who were in that area and he did follow the case and this could have been one of those one times where someone was genuinely concerned. Lance was subjected to a high level of surveillance and police pressure over several years. He continued to maintain his innocence though. This is a suspect that police wasted far too much time on because they did not have any direct evidence. One of the reasons why the police wasted far too much time on Lance is because he was a suspect who fitted into a profile. A profile that... Unfortunately, David Burney had pigeonholed, despite him not being a behavioural psychologist, just a murderer. Even behavioural psychologists say when they're giving a profile that it's not something that is going to be 100% accurate. It is just a generalisation. The person could be the complete anomaly of what could be pigeonholed. So this is something that can just give people an idea. It is not the exact suspect. After interviewing Lance six times at length, the police finally declared in late 2008 that he was no longer a person of interest. Sadly, Lance passed away in 2018, 
after living so many years of his life under constant scrutiny. He would also not live to see the trial of the real killer and to finally have that clean slate he needed and so deserved. It was also reported that police also investigated whether Bradley Murdoch may have been involved. Although Murdoch was serving a custodial sentence from November 1995 until February 1997. It was also in October 2006 announced that Mark Dixie was a prime suspect in the killings and that Macro had requested DNA samples. However, Western Australia Police Deputy Commissioner Murray Lampard was later quoted as saying, Dixie was closely investigated at the time and eventually ruled out as a suspect. On the 22nd of December, 2016, Bradley Robert Edwards was arrested at his Kewdell house in relation to the deaths of both James and Keogh. According to our Australian Broadcast News, the ABC News, he is believed to have no previous link to this case. The next day, Edwards was charged with both murders. And he was charged in relation to two other alleged attacks, a house break in and enter and a lawful detention of an 18 year old woman in Huntingdale on February 1988 and the unlawful detention and two counts of aggravated sexual penetration without consent of a 17-year-old girl in Claremont on the 12th of February, 1995. On the 22nd of February, 2018, Edwards was also charged with the willful murder of the third victim, Sarah. In all, Edwards was charged with eight offences, and on the 21st of October 2019, Edwards pleaded guilty to the five non-murder charges. Bradley Edwards' trial began on the 25th of November 2019. During the trial, the court was told of the two victims that had defensive wounds and that Edwards' DNA was found under Kiera's fingernails, although the defence argued that this evidence was contaminated. One of the main pieces of evidence in the trial was the Telstra work vehicles. Edwards was working as a technician at the time and it was claimed that he used the company vehicles after hours to execute the crimes. This was corroborated by a witness, a security guard who recalled seeing a telecom van parked on multiple occasions at the Kakaret Cemetery for no apparent reason, both after that attack and before Sarah's disappearance. According to the prosecutor, Carmel Barbagallo, the state presented that this is evidence as part of the case calling Telstra Living Witness Project, where between 1995 and 1997, a man with Telstra station wagons stopped to look at women and offered them rides. Just to give you a little bit of a background, Telstra is Australia's biggest telephone network and their shops and vans are seen on the streets and in our shopping centres all over. During the trial, 
Brandon Gray, a witness from the group of men dubbed the Burger Boys, one of the three men who saw Kiera, identified the Series 1 VS Commodore station wagon as cruising past them shortly after Kiera walked past. The vehicle had a distinctive teardrop hubcaps, which were present on some of the Series 1 VS Commodores. Between April 1996 and December 1998, Edwards drove a white VS Series wagon with the Telstra logos. The vehicle was tracked down and impounded on the same day as his arrest. During the hearing, it was revealed that the fibres matched the carpet in the rear of Edwards' vehicle and matched the fibres found on the bodies of both Jane and Kira. The defence argued that these fibres could have come from another source or another vehicle which was not included in the Western Australia crime database. The trial concluded on the 25th of June 2020 after seven months of hearings and evidence from more than 200 witnesses. The presiding judge, Justice Stephen Hall, then retired to consider his verdict in the case, flagging that it may potentially be handed down before Edward's abandoned custody ends on the 24th of September 2020. On the final day of custody, Hall handed down a 619-page written verdict within which Edwards was found guilty of the murders of Jane and Kira, but not of Sarah, though it was more likely that Edwards was involved in her disappearance than not. It, this is a victory for two of the women, but sadly not for Sarah and her family. Until the body of Sarah is found, I do not think that the police or court will be able to make any further moves. Edwards was given two life sentences without the possibility of parole. So the likelihood that he will ever come out of prison is very minimal. To round off this, I just wanted to give in a little bit of extra details as it has been suggested by a really prominent journalist in Australia, Liam Bartlett, that Sarah might not have been the first victim. He wrote that police have told the father of a fourth missing woman, 22-year-old Julie Cutler, that his daughter was probably a victim of the Claremont killer. Julie was a university student from Fremantle who vanished after leaving a staff function at the Palmilla Hotel in Perth at 9pm on the 20th of June 1988. Her car was found on the surf near the groin at Cottesloe Beach two days later and her fate still remains unknown. Other possible cases include that of Lisa Brown, a 19-year-old sex worker who disappeared on the 10th of November 1998, and Sarah McMahon, 20, who disappeared on the 8th of November 2000. These two cases, their remains are still unknown as well, but given the area and the time and the sightings of Edward's car, it is possible that he could have been involved in their disappearance and consequential murders too. 
I suppose the positive that we can actually take from the case is that Kira fought so hard for her life and that little bit of DNA evidence that she managed to scratch has eventually brought about the justice that she definitely deserves, Jane definitely deserves, and Sarah definitely still deserves. Especially with seeing recently the East Area Rapist, how even after years, the DNA, they can still find you. I think this must be seen as a positive that doesn't matter how old or how cold the case is, the police can still find them eventually. There is still that glimmer of hope that families of victims should not let go of. So my sources this week, the first one is an article called The Night Sarah Spears Disappear from a Claremont Street Corner by Grant Taylor and Gabrielle Nels. Also, I had Wikipedia with the Claremont serial killers, an Australian story on ABC, Hunt for a Killer, the Claremont Murders, Crime and Investigation Australia, the Claremont Serial Killer Case File True Crime Podcast. Also, I used a few other articles which can be found on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation archived in the Wayback Machine. I also um, went through Claremont Killer, Bradley Edwards found guilty of Jane Roman and Kiera Glenna murders, but not Sarah Spears. That was on the 24th of September, 2020 by Andrea Mayers. And also, um, I did so many, there were so many articles that I did actually read on this, but um, the final one was actually WA's trial of the century to begin in November, the Western Australian on the 6th of June, 2019. There is so many things that you can read and watch about this. And because it has been so recent that he was convicted, it really does take that element of being fresh and new all over again. Thank you for listening to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. If you like this podcast, please subscribe for more content and please join our Facebook group, Carve for Mortals podcast. Or if you have any stories you'd like me to cover, then please email them to macabreformortals at gmail.com. Next time, I'm going to be looking into cases of Hannah Gret Donnelly and also Rosie Batty. I'm not quite sure which one I'm going to do first, but they're both looking at um, domestic violence in two different perspectives two different women's perspectives as well um, coming from a place of talking about domestic violence and the different meanings and different ways it can happen I think these two cases are really important to cover so thank you again for listening and thank you for putting up with my lesson audible voice today. Um, I hope you have a great week. Bye.